0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned.
1: I'm Preet Bharara. You know, we're indelibly woven into this network, this infinitely complex network that is all of life, that is the entire history of the planet, which therefore is also the entire history of the solar system. So I think there's a very different view emerging. That's Adam Frank, He's a
0: professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester. He spent much of his life studying what lies beyond our galaxy and making it make sense for folks like you and me. He's written several books about the cosmos and frequently writes for major publications about astronomy and culture. News about the universe is always floating around. UFO sightings, private space exploration, asteroids headed towards us. Professor Frank joins me to answer some complicated scientific questions. Like, what's the probability of finding alien life in the near future? Could we live on or in an asteroid in space? And what is the meaning of this thing we call life? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms, since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Now, let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Miriam, who asks simply, who will go first, Willis or Smith? Exclamation mark, question mark. So obviously, Miriam is referring to the question that is on everyone's mind and may be answered before you even hear this podcast. And that is with respect to election interference in the January 6th issue, which prosecutor will file charges first against Donald Trump? Fawny Willis, who is the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, with respect to election interference that she is alleging, we believe, in connection with the Georgia election, or Jack Smith, the special counsel at the Department of Justice. So if you had asked this question some time ago, I would have answered, well, I think it's almost certain that Willis would go first because she had a head start in the investigation. She was putting witnesses into the grand jury. There was a special grand jury convened, as you may recall, in Georgia that made the recommendation to bring actual felony charges with respect to election interference in Georgia. So there was a big head start. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that I and Joyce Vance and others have wondered why it was the case that the Department of Justice didn't seem to be doing a lot with respect to Donald Trump and his immediate orbit when they were investigating the January 6th insurrection. Well, a few months later, Jack Smith seems to have caught up. And the reason I think that Jack Smith is going first is in the last number of days, he and his team have issued a target letter to President Trump. And if prior history is any prologue, that usually means that an indictment will quickly follow. Whether it'll happen this week or next week is anyone's guess. But I think that'll be the first shoe to drop. Or I guess if you're, if you're keeping count, the third shoe to drop. And Fawny Willis will be the fourth. Now, implicit in your question, I guess, is whether or not there's been any coordination between the Fulton County DA and the special counsel, Jack Smith. I don't think there has been any formal coordination. First of all, there's no requirement that there be any coordination. There may be some overlapping facts and maybe a few overlapping witnesses, but I expect the federal government's case to be much broader in scope. will relate not just to Georgia, but also to all the events that happened on January 6th and in some other states as well. And it's the prerogative of the Justice Department to pursue its cases uh, because it's a sovereign prosecutor, as is the Fulton County DA. One final note, just because Jack Smith may go first with respect to either the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which has already been indicted, or the January 6th case, which is not, doesn't mean that those trials will happen first. That'll be up to the individual judges in the individual districts based on how they think the timing should unfold uh, and how quickly they can get the discovery done and how complicated the issues are and how many motions there are. So it's possible that even if Fonnie Willis goes fourth in terms of the order of indictment, she may not be fourth in terms of when the trial begins. This question comes from Twitter user Gwendolyn, who says, hi, I'm an attorney. I worked on managing one case in my career so far where a defendant received a target letter but wasn't ever indicted. How often does that happen? Hashtag ask preach. So I don't know how often it happens. I should also make clear to folks that there is no absolute requirement that the target letter be sent to somebody who is in fact considered to be a target by a local prosecutor and certainly not by the federal government. Sometimes it's sent, sometimes it's not. I don't think there was any formal requirement that Donald Trump be sent a target letter in either the Mar-a-Lago documents case On the January 6th case. What I will say, more broadly answering your question, once the government determines that an individual is a target, someone about whom they're likely to have proof that they can bring to bear beyond a reasonable doubt, that they're guilty of violating a federal statute, usually that status does not change. But if they're doing their jobs right, and they have an open mind, and the process is fair, and the people involved in the process, as I've often written, are fair-minded, new evidence comes to light. Sometimes there are presentations by the target and the target's lawyers, I was present for many such presentations myself during my time as US Attorney, and sometimes minds are changed because arguments that may not have been considered as fully as they should have been by the prosecutors are made by able defense lawyers. Defenses are raised that maybe weren't fully fleshed out by the prosecution memo that the prosecutors may have prepared within their own offices, which is why I think an open and transparent process and a non covert investigation, and many investigations are covert and have to be necessarily, but in non covert investigations, where the inquiry is open and notorious and there's an exchange of information between the target's lawyers and the prosecutors who are making a decision and deliberating on the very profound choice of bringing a charge or not bringing a charge, sometimes that free flow of information results in the eventuality that you caused to happen with respect to that one client you mentioned in your question, that someone is a target, maybe even has gotten a target letter, but at the end of the day, all things considered, in the totality of the circumstances, the government decides to stand down. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And the fact that it happens shows that the process is working. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Bill Bixby88. I trust, Bill Bixby, that you were not the actor who played Bruce Banner on the original Incredible Hulk on network television. The question is Hi, Preet. You feature a lot of authors on your podcast and are an author yourself. What's your stance on signing books? Did you ask Robert Caro to sign Master of the Senate after your interview with him? So, I do have a lot of authors because they're very thoughtful and smart. And before the pandemic, when most of the interviews took place in person at our studio in Manhattan, from time to time, if I remembered, I would have an author sign a book. You asked specifically about Robert Caro, who is a hero of mine. I revere him. I revere his books. I revere his scholarship. I revere his storytelling. And I did not ask him to sign my book because I think I was so in awe (laughs) of his presence. And I was so nervous about the interview. And I do get nervous about some interviews. I wanted to do a good job asking questions of this person who I've been reading for decades and who was, I think, one of the greatest biographers of our generation or any generation. You have reminded me that I was remiss and I lost my opportunity. Maybe I'll have one again. My stance on signing books for other people, I sign them all the time. I've signed thousands of copies of my books at book events and at speaking events, uh, I think signing books is great. I'll be right back with my conversation with Adam Frank. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone... ...has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. People often talk about saving the Earth when it comes to climate change. But it's not the Earth that will need saving if the climate becomes unlivable. It's us. Astrophysics professor Adam Frank joins me to put issues like climate change into a larger perspective and to break down some of science's most complicated questions. Professor Adam Frank, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. I am very excited to speak with you about so many things. Some people may not realize this, but I've often said that as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, at some point I wanted to be a government lawyer, a prosecutor. But I did, in fact, have one ambition— Earlier in my youth, that predates wanting to be a lawyer, and in fact, my ambition, when I was, I guess, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, was to be an astronomer. There you go. And I studied everything I could about astronomy. This would would be the '70s. I was fascinated by the cosmos. I read a lot of science fiction, and here I have a real-life astronomer to whom I can put any question I want. Is that is
1: that the deal with us? I am ready to go. You know, I have a very similar story. I just didn't change. I started, I got interested in astronomy when I was five in the 70s, when I was a kid in the 70s, because my dad was a writer and he had um, science fiction, uh, the the uh, pulp magazines in his library. Oh, yeah. And looking at those covers, like, blew my mind. And that was it. And I, you know, the Hayden Planetarium, my sister was forced to go there so many times.
0: <laughs> it's a little odd. I've always said, you know, a lot of little boys and girls aspire to be astronauts. I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to go visit. I wanted to be at a telescope. What
1: does that say about you and me? Yeah, yeah, right. well, I would have done the astro- I would have done the uh the astronaut thing, but I really wanted to leave the solar system. I mean, Mars was not good enough for me. I wanted I actually was for a while I thought maybe well, I was you can't even get to-, to Mars yeah well, that's right, right but I, I I wanted I wanted the galactic throne. I wanted to be the heir to the galactic throne that didn't work out.
0: My first question is about the rate at which our knowledge is advancing. So I remember when I was a kid which is not that long ago. (laughs) My kids think it was a long time ago, but it's not, you know, centuries ago. It's a few decades ago. And at that point, we had not yet definitively identified any planet outside of our own solar system. Uh, Some people still thought there was a a network of canals on Mars. I I think we were just beginning to understand the Big Bang Theory. And most importantly, if you're of a certain age, Pluto was still considered a planet. (laughs) And since then, if you could just take us through sort of by what order of magnitude our knowledge increases. You know, there's this thing called Moore's law which suggest that the processing speed of a microprocessor doubles every 18 months. Is there a similar characterization you can make about our knowledge of the cosmos?
1: Well, it's interesting that you're bringing up Moore's law because I would say that, yes, knowledge, astronomical knowledge in particular has followed Moore's law. And one reason is because of computers, right? These technologies are what drive the um, increase in knowledge. And it has been exponential, right? The, The things... The exoplanet stuff, the discovery of, of planets orbiting other stars, is one thing that I really like to point out. Because, you know, that's a 2,500-year-old question. You can see Aristotle and Democritus arguing about it. And no, uh, and
0: as recently as when I was young, people weren't sure we would ever be able to definitively identify an exoplanet. And that, that challenge was met pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know I can't tell you how many astronomical careers going up into the '70s, as you said, of people falling on their swords of making a claim of an exoplanet detection and then having it be wrong, and then they're humiliated. Um, and now it was '95 that the first uh, exoplanet around a sun-like star was discovered, and that you know that was that was a game changer. But now we've gotten to the point where we know that every. Star in the sky. When you go out and look at stars, every one of them has at least one planet, if not a family of worlds. Um, right, so let's so, let's let's do that numerically for a moment.
0: As of 1995, which is only, if I'm doing my math correctly, 28 years ago, yeah, no exoplanets identified by the human race. Zero. Yes. Since then, how many have been positively identified? Putting aside your inference that you just mentioned about every star having some kind of planetary system, how many? specific exoplanets, meaning planets outside of our own solar system, have been identified? 5,000. 5,000. Yeah. So what what is the basis for your conclusion or astronomers' conclusion that every star has at least one?
1: Yeah. So what we do now, because what we've done is we made a census, right? So we went from like, oh my God, we just found an exoplanet in 28 years to being like, oh yeah, we know enough about them to be able to say what the average uh, kind of planet is like, what the average kind of star that has planets are like. You know, we've done, by having 5,000 and, and so you're having,
0: extrapolating from the sample. Yep.
1: Yeah. And the sample is now so large that, you know, we have really high confidence in that idea that, you know, one, every star has a planet and every five stars has a planet with uh in the orbit where life could form what we call the habitable zone
0: and explain to people how it is we know about the five thousand planets we don't have telescopes that are more that are powerful enough to see the planet like we see jupiter or saturn or some of the others in our own solar system that's also a process of inference explain that
1: yeah so this is again this advance in technology so the first planets that we discovered, we discovered by actually watching the movement of the stars. When a, a planet and a goes around a star, the star actually goes around the planet as well. I mean, they're actually orbiting around what's called the center of mass. So, you know, the planet's doing this orbit, but the star is also wobbling back and forth. And so in 95, we had technologies that were good enough that could analyze the light coming from the star and actually detect that back and forth wobble. And encoded in that wobble is the mass uh, and the radius of of the planet. So that's how we discovered the first planets was what we call the wobble method. But then another way of finding exoplanets was to look for basically what is the interstellar equivalent of an eclipse. When a planet passes in front of a star between us and the stars, it's going around in its orbit, the light dims a little bit, right? It blocks a little bit of the starlight. So that the planet blocking the starlight, we can actually, with sensitive enough detectors, we can see this tiny one percent diminution in the light of the of the star, and you know how that light dims encodes all kinds of information, like the size of the planet, the size of the orbit, et cetera. And that is the wholesale method. That's how we really started getting like the five thousand,
0: right? And and so was that a an epiphany about a method in or about the mid nineties? or it was that and also more sensitive
1: instruments. It was uh, it's that's a really interesting story because this actually brings SETI into it, the search for intel- intelligent uh, life, because the in, in both cases, it's the story of technology. But what's interesting is people recognize like in the 19 late 1970s, NASA held a couple of workshops bringing astronomers together. And this was really driven by the SETI people, the people who wanted to find life, intelligent life in the universe. And they tried to map out like, OK, what kind of technologies do we need? And everybody focused on that wobble method. And there was this one guy, Bill Baruki, who was like, no, no, no. The transit method, the eclipse, little eclipses, that should work. And NASA was like, yeah, whatever. And he kept putting in proposal after proposal. And finally, he you know, he basically beat them down and showed them this method could work. And this transit method is what the Kepler Space Telescope, which was launched in like 2011, that is the one that gave us the 5,000. It was a wholesale way of finding uh, exoplanets. So it was both a story of ingenuity, of determination and technology. You have written
0: that the universe is not teeming with life. And I'm curious as to why you say that, given how many planets are believed to be in the habitable zone, in their orbits around their stars, and the sheer number of total planets that there are.
1: Well, I don't think, I mean, what I meant in that piece was, this was just recently, I, I think that the universe, you know, one of the things we did this paper in 2016, that we showed that there are 10 billion trillion habitable zone planets in the universe. That sounds pretty teeming. That's pretty. Yeah. (laughs) But again, we don't know how many of those. It's still,
0: that's still a small percentage of the total.
1: Well, actually, that's a pretty reasonable... It's because because there's so many planets. That's actually not a small... That That's actually about, you know, on the order of 20% of the total because so many planets are in the right place for life. So what I was really saying, I was just recently pointing this out, that, you know, what you really have to know about is how many of those... Every one of those is an experiment, right? That nature is running with planets and life. And there is the possibility that it could be, especially intelligent life, might be rare. I mean, so, you know, uh, as a scientist... I have, to, I have a certain view, like keeping my scientist hat on. As a person knowing those numbers, and, you know, I I I tend to believe that there's been a lot of life in the universe, and particularly intelligent life, but whether or not there's anybody in the galaxy right now, because, you know, we don't know how long civilizations last. That's the interesting question um, for us in particular. So it's Maybe not that long. To, <laughs> right. We've <laughs> only been... Long. Yeah, we've only been um we've only been an industrial civilization, quote unquote, for, you know, a hundred years or so. And yeah, we're not doing that well <laughs> right now. So, um, and is that are we unusual or is this kind of the the typical uh trajectory for a, a civilization? So I'm you know, I'm agnostic about it, but in my heart I believe that the universe has been full of life. There's probably lots and lots of planets that have Biospheres, you know, that have forests. Yeah. So I was going to ask
0: so we, the distinction between intelligent and non intelligent life, I understand why we make that distinction. But just tell folks the consensus about the likelihood that there is life, some kind of biological life out there, is near certainty. Fair?
1: Well, I would say consensus. I'd be careful about that just because, and this is what's really interesting, right? Because the consensus. What's your view? What's your view? My, okay. So my view based on, and this is what we argue about. We in the field argue. It would seem,
0: look, I'm not an astronomer. I left astronomy when I was 11, (laughs) but given the sheer numbers of, you know, trillions of planets, it doesn't seem to be radical to say that there is
1: life on some of them. I think that's a reasonable assumption to make because there are so many. But the thing is, if I give you, you know, a hundred or a million planets, right, but the odds of forming life on them is one in two million, then you've just run out of, you know, it's all depends on the probabilities associated. And at the particular moment that you're observing as well. Yeah, as in the particular moment. I mean, what's interesting. So I do think here's what I here's what I think the consensus in the community is. You know simple life microbial life is probably easy to form and the reason we say that we have some data about this is that in the history of the earth the earth formed about four and a half billion years ago and probably by 3.8 billion years ago there was microbial life almost as soon as the earth cooled down to the point where the surface you could have life on it life appeared right so that kind of makes you think like oh it's not hard like as soon as you get the chance it'll happen intelligent life though right you now have to wait another you know almost three billion years before intelligence shows up in fact you have to wait it's only half a billion years ago that even animals complex life shows up it was all microbes up until about half a billion years ago and that maybe indicates that like oh it's a little bit harder to do that now do the laws of
0: evolution as have been given down the principles of evolution apply intergalactically
1: that is such an awesome question. And I think the answer <laughs> is yes.
0: Because <laughs> if you start with microbes somewhere, right. is it inevitable or was it something special about Earth that caused those life forms to evolve?
1: Well, I think absolutely the laws of evolution hold because there's a certain logic, right? It's evolution is more than just laws, it's this logic of like look if I've got, you know, uh life forming and life is about muta- life is about reproduction and it also has the possibility of mutation of change. What that means is, you know, the environment's always going to be changing. And so what that means is whenever you get life that, you know, a mutation or something that happens that is more fit for the environment, it's gonna win. Like that's just a logic. Um, And so in that sense, I think evolution is going to be the rule. However, Evolution doesn't have a plan, right? So it's sometimes we think of ourselves as, oh, you know, the whole Earth history was waiting for us. Um, but the really, you know, if you ran the Earth's history over again, started back, we probably never would have shown up because there's so many accidents that have to happen. So there's really, and also intelligence, as you can kind of see, our kind of intelligence may not be such a great thing in terms of living for a long time as a species, right? Um, sharks have been around for 100 million years. You know, is a technological civilization civilization going to be around for a hundred million years? Maybe actually th- our kind of intelligence isn't going to help. I hope that's not true, but I'm just saying like that's a possibility.
0: I'm going to jump ahead just for a brief second, but I'm sure. to get back to this later. But, but you put the thought in my head to the principles of evolution and the rules of evolution apply to artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah. Oh my God, man. What a <laughs> timely question too. Uh, yes, it should. I wouldn't see any reason why if you know, if artificial They're by answering the question of whether or not we will last 100 million years, no. <laughs> That's right. Well, we can get into AI. I'm, I'm, you know, I have my own opinions about what the, pro- you know, problems with AI. I'm not, I do, you know, I don't think AI is going to go Skynet on us and, you know, launch all the nuclear weapons to get rid of us. Well, I do not want to um, get ahead of us. I, I, I want to yeah,
0: stick to yeah. alien to alien life. And by the way, I yes. should mention that you have a book coming out- I do. In the near future called The Little Book of Aliens. Yes. Which is a great title- and I wonder if you have aspirations for it to be a show on Broadway. <laughs> it Sounds <laughs> yes, a little bit like a little shop of horrors. That's
1: exactly. Little I, book want of musical, I, I want Broadway musical. I want everyone. Yes, yes. I can I see want. it on
0: the marquee. Um, <laughs> I was joking about this, and then we'll get serious again in a moment. That every time you see aliens in the movies—not every time, but you know—it seems like a vast majority of times, aliens coming to the Earth either in peace or to harm us or to take us over or to eat us—they're always some form of reptile. What's the likelihood that the first extraterrestrials we make contact with will be reptilian?
1: Yeah, human-shaped reptilians as well, right? Like, they got the long arms. They kind of basically look like us. So this is the the principle of prosthetic foreheads, as I call it, right? Every science fiction movie you see, you know, is some version of, you know, especially depending on the budget, of just sticking something on somebody's forehead. Oh, it's an alien. They got antenna or, you know, pointed ears or a, a reptile mask. And the thing is, as we just talked about, evolution does not work that way. I mean, when we meet aliens, certainly what's cool about thinking about evolution on other planets is you can see how physics and the laws of physics and chemistry will guide, probably guide evolution to make similar choices on different planets. We call that convergent evolution. So like wings, we've seen wings evolve on Earth a bunch of different times from totally different evolutionary trajectories because wings are a good solution because you live in air, right? But that doesn't mean anything's going to end up looking like a humanoid, right? So that, again, this, the, the role of accidents in evolution mean that you're probably never going to get humans again anywhere else. So it really speaks to the lack of imagination or budget of most uh, science fiction stories.
0: So we talked about the way you can infer the existence of other planets because we're at a great remove from those planets. And everyone is interested in finding out if you have life, intelligent or otherwise, on other planets. What's the method by which, before we've perfected any kind of space travel at that distance, what's the method by which we will ever be able to determine that there is some
1: kind of life on another planet? This is, to me, one of the, and I covered this in the book, one of the most extraordinary and exciting things happening in astronomy today, which is that we can do it. We now, we know how to do it and we have the technologies to do it. So here's the thing. And this actually, the, the guy who showed us this was the guy who showed us the Gaia theory, the, who showed us actually about and about climate change, James Lovelock. but James Lovelock, he was this polymath who people who know about climate change you know know about him from what's called the Gaia theory, which is that the life, when life forms on a planet, it hijacks the planet's evolution. It just takes over. Like the the history of the planet is now entirely different. And what he realized was that the atmosphere of a planet with life will look totally different than the atmosphere of a planet without life. So for example, the oxygen, you know, we should all take a nice deep breath. That oxygen you're breathing is only there because of life. For the first billion years of earth's history when it had life we had life in the you know on earth there was no oxygen in the atmosphere and it was because evolution created these you know these microbes that did photosynthesis you know took energy from the sun in a way that spit out or even farted out if you want to put it that way um uh uh, oxygen and that's why 21 percent of the atmosphere is oxygen so what we can do now is we can look at distant planets and we can in that, um, that transit method I was talking about, you know, when the planet passes in front of the star, the light from the star will pass through the planet's atmosphere for a moment. And we can grab that light and analyze it. And in that light will be the signature of whatever chemicals are in the atmosphere. So if we see oxygen in a exoplanet, we pretty much know that there's life there, that there was a biosphere that put it there. If we see something like chlorofluorocarbons, right, those chemicals that almost ate the ozone, we know there's an industrial civilization there. And we have those capacities, like we're just now with the JWST, getting those capacities. The next telescopes that we're building now, will have, have them in spades. So we are ready now. We are, for the first time in history, we are ready now to find life, dumb or smart, on alien worlds. If there's enough of it. If there's enough of it. Exactly. And that's what we'll see. But one way or the other, we're going to answer this question that we have been yelling at each other, setting each other on fire <laughs> when? When <laughs> over are we, the last 2,500 What's, 2, the, what's years. the date? What's the date? Adam? When it's going to happen? Find, yeah. Well, it's, you know, as I like to say, you you know, science is a long game, right? You know, you don't answer <laughs> yeah. the most impressive and hardest question you've ever answered in, you know, three days. But I think within a decade or two or three, we will have data that's relevant to the answer. I, to, I can't tell you what the answer is going to be, but yeah you know, we're all, we took data just a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago that it, we were looking for an atmosphere on a planet, and we found there was no atmosphere. So okay, you could say, well, we didn't find life, yeah, but we found something that was relevant to life. And as time goes on and we look at more planets, you know I, the, the data is going to be there, and we'll see.
0: ballpark figure. How many of the exoplanets are made of green cheese?
1: <laughs> 6,442
0: um that was also my prediction
1: <laughs> except for the two we were off by you know a couple of percent
0: part of the reason i ask is and i guess we don't maybe we don't care about these people but there are some folks in modern uh society who don't believe we went to the moon oh god who who think the moon is a um is a hoax yeah
1: flat earthers same thing
0: and, and i guess i guess it doesn't matter that we convince people if the scientific discovery has ever happened upon that there's an atmosphere and life on a distant planet i guess do we care that we have people who don't believe that or not?
1: I don't think it's going to matter that much. I mean, you know, the, the rise of science denial, as you know, and the kinds of things you cover, you know, is very much a political, is, a, is a, an artifact of the things that are happening in culture now. You know, it's late stage capitalism plus, you know, you know artificial intelligence in the form of social media, et cetera. But it's not going to matter not in the long run because you know when the think about the Copernican revolution before the Copernican revolution in whatever 1600 everybody thought the sun was going around the earth. And then after the Copernican revolution, you know, it was the opposite. People recognized that the earth was going around the sun and that played a huge role, even if people didn't know it in, in the reformation, in, you know, the rise of the mercantile class. I mean, it was part of this revolution about how humans understood themselves in the universe. And if we find life, even dumb life, even microbes, it'll play a similar role. It will rewrite how human beings understand themselves in the universe.
0: Okay, so one way we can discover if there's life is by the methods that you described. Mm -hmm. Another way, and we alluded to it very briefly in passing, is that alien life forms come and visit us. Right. And there's a lot of speculation, because it's exciting, and part of me wants to believe it to be true, that some of these UFOs, by the way, they're not called UFOs anymore.
1: What are they called? UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena.
0: I mean, that's just ridiculous. I know. (laughs) Um, Why can't we just call them UFOs? (laughs) Rebranding. You are skeptical as a scientist, did any of those sightings any of those things taken into custody by any government indicate outside of the earth or outside the solar system life why is that
1: well there's a bunch of reasons for this i mean the first one is that if you look at the history and for the book i you know i go through the history is that it's it's a mess right i mean it's it's nothing but blobby photographs you know uh and and conspiracy theories there's never been the kind of data right that we would require to be able to make that kind of leap. As Carl Sagan said, extraordinary conclusions or extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And it's, you're not even close to that. Um, even with these Navy videos, right? So there were those Navy videos that came out a few years ago and everybody was so excited about them. And people were claiming, like, look at these speeds, these things are moving at impossible speeds. The NASA panel, which recently convened and had their first meeting, they showed an analysis of one of those videos. The one where the you see the tic-tac thing Zooming over the ocean. Um, And it turns out that was moving. You do the analysis, you decide, you know, you can look at what's happening and, you know, do some simple calculations. It was going at 40 miles an hour, right? I can go faster (laughs) than that on my bike rolling downhill. So um, there's just never been quality data. And whenever anybody looks at when they do any kind of analysis, it turns out that maybe only 10%, 5% really can't be explained. Uh, and sometimes those lack of explanations is because you just don't have enough data to start an explanation. Now, this, I want to, if I could just, uh, however, there's an important however there. There was a very important paper uh, written by a guy named James McDonald, who was an atmospheric physicist, physicist in the, uh, the 60s. And he took it upon himself to go back and look at some of these unexplained cases in previous government reports. And he definitely found, he went back and interviewed people, and he definitely found some that were pretty freaky deaky right? That were really, you know, that really raised the hair on the back of your neck. So it's possible. It still is possible, right? And I, I can, I, there are some narratives about life in the universe that I can imagine why they might be here or how they might be here. But in general, you know, you look at the data that exists and it just it is not even close to letting you make that leap that this is, you know, these things are doing something that, that is non-terrestrial technology.
0: Of all the various related endeavors that are connected to the analysis of space and bodies and systems outside of our own solar system, or even within our solar system for that matter, it may include unmanned missions to the moon and to nearby planets, probes that maybe go to the outer planets, telescopes we put into space, things that we can do here on earth, like you've been describing. Which of those is the most important for gaining necessary and important and maybe even pragmatic scientific understanding. And I guess that's a long way of asking, if you had the ability to control the entire sort of cosmos
1: budget on Earth, how would you allocate it? Wow, that's interesting. I mean, are we talking about life in the universe? Are we talking about just like, you know, sort of everything knowledge, scientific knowledge? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, to me, telescopes and robot rovers are probably where you're gonna, you know, are probably the best bet. Like we could have right now. So here's an amazing thing. On one of the moons orbiting Saturn, the ringed planet Saturn is called Titan and it's got giant lakes, semi-oceans of liquid methane. You know, and right now, if we wanted to. Now if we How could much put the does money- that smell, by the way? <laughs> it smells good. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, going back to farts, right? We're going to make a lot of fart jokes in this. It's. I was going to say
0: been- the evolution of animals on that planet, on that on that moon. Like, <laughs> They're very small noses. It's so odd. Their nostrils are infinitesimal.
1: Non-existent. Yeah, right. But, you know, we could send a, we, you know, there was a proposal to have a, a submarine. We could have sent a submarine <laughs> that would have cruised around those. And we didn't do it because there's not enough money, right? You know, in the budget. So I think those kinds of things yield And these space telescopes, I mean, there's just amazing things that we could do if we had the funding for it, um, including, you know, again, even think about life in on the solar system. We've got at least two moons that have subsurface oceans. There's more water on the moon Europa orbiting uh, Jupiter than there is in all of Earth's oceans. Right. It's crazy. Wait, that's so, a that's an enormous amount. I know. It's incredible. The, the, you know, the deepest part of the ocean on Earth is six miles deep. Europa's ocean is 100 miles deep. And it's and covered what's in that. And
0: what's that ocean made of water, liquid water? So is there some likelihood that there is some microbiotic
1: life? There is, I mean, likelihood it's possible. We even, you know, we even know how it might be powered because, you know, where, where the energy would come from because it's covered. This is the wild thing. It's so far out in space that um the ocean itself is covered by probably like 10 miles of ice. So, you know, there's no sunlight getting into the ocean, but the um, geothermal activity, the core, the rocky core of this moon is constantly getting squeezed by Jupiter's super gravity. And it, you know, it generates heat and the heat bubbles up probably into the, just like it does on earth. And that could be a site where Life could form.
0: It's crazy. Is the future of space exploration is it lie in the hands of governments or private parties? And if it's private parties, is it just those three billionaires?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting question. I am all in favor of, I, you know, of commercial space. You know, the the role of commercial space because you know you ask the question like, what should we be doing? Like, I, it's clear that robot rovers are you know less expensive than human beings. You know, like in terms of sending to Mars. But on the other hand, you know, I think it's essential that human beings have a presence in space that actually I could imagine in 300 years that depending on how things go, if we make it through climate change, so this is kind of the, the the prize for making through climate change that we could have, you know, hundreds of millions of people living in space. Um, and I think that's really important. Wait, for... in only 300 years? Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah. We're
0: going to get to that. We've <laughs> we got to get to that next. Because I've seen some of your writings on this. I guess the possibilities are you have a freestanding you know, domicile, right? A space station, right? You plant a colony on the moon or on Mars or some other place, all of which have lots of obstacles and challenges of an extraordinary uh, nature. And then you've suggested some other way, and maybe you could spend a minute talking about it because it sounds fantastical. Maybe we make new homes inside of asteroids, not on them, but inside them. Professor Discuss. (laughs)
1: Well, first of all, uh, there's this show called The Expanse, which is based on some books, which I don't know if you've seen, but I recommend it. It is the greatest science fiction show ever made. Um, And one of the reasons is because it's so scientifically accurate, takes place about 300 years from now. And that's an idea that they played around with and other science fiction writers have played around with. Because asteroids are these, you know, giant mountains. They're flying mountains. And the idea is... You know, why try and drop down a gravity well like Mars, which, you know, it costs money to not crash on it. And then it costs money to get out of it, you know, know, in terms of fuel, take one of these asteroids, hollow the inside out and then spin it up. So then you get a giant rotating, you know, mountain and then you can live on the inside. Right. Because, you know, if you've ever been on one of those uh, amusement park rides where like the giant the room spins and the floor drops away. That's you know the centrifugal force. You can you can have you can have what we call spin gravity. And you know, what we calculate, we did a whole calculation on this about how you might be able to do this. And you know, what we found is like even a small asteroid, an asteroid that was, I remember, I think like maybe 10 kilometers across in diameter, you could basically turn into a rotating space habitat that would have the same area as uh Manhattan. And how many people live in Manhattan? Right. So, you know. And this is, you know, 300 years. Think about 200 years ago, right? 200 years ago when, you know, what Jane Austen novels, everybody's wearing stovepipe hats. Nobody had (laughs) traveled faster than like, 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, maybe 80 miles an hour. And that was when they were falling to their death off a cliff, right? Because <laughs> trains hadn't been invented. And now we yeah, were- Yeah, I today. mean, the iPhone didn't come out till like 1815 or something <laughs> like that, right? right? yeah. I saw a tweet about that from one of the first tweets <laughs> in 1850. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, what's remarkable is that now all of us are like, yeah, five, we travel 500 miles an hour sitting down five miles in the sky and we don't even think about it. So the idea that 300 years from now, you know, we could have- you know, a solar system that is colonized, that is settled, that there are, you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions living on Mars in every, basically every nook and cranny that we can find to live in the solar system. I think it would be useful if we did that. Um, and I think- but It would be useful why.
0: So it, some people will say, just, I don't mean to keep going back to this. Sure, this is This pragmatic question of allocation of resources, but resources are finite. That's why we didn't put a submersible on the moon of Saturn. If you have trillions of dollars to spend, and the idea is to have something sustainable and also learn from it. Is that money better spent on the long-shot prospect of housing people off the planet or on fixing the planet vis-a-vis us and finding other places, whether it's underwater or in you know places that are uninhabitable to our mind now? In other words, the most uninhabitable place on Earth, right? <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know what you would pick as options for that, has gotta be easier to build a village on. Than Mars,
1: yes, that's absolutely true. all right So why aren't we doing that? Well, uh, let me just. But, but let me, if I could just wind it back a little bit, this is not going to be done because because governments are going to put the money into it solely. This is why commercial. Oh, the commercial is it going to be freaking space. Bezos again? Well, I mean, they, those guys will get us started, right? They're the ones who launched it. But really, what they did is they created. They started the the space economy, right? That there's there are now you know, lots of space startups. There are lots of companies in all kinds of different ways, figuring out how to get stuff into space way more cheaply than NASA did. And that is, you know, that's the essence. And because, you know, the low earth orbit is worth billions and billions of dollars, right? When you think about all the satellite communications, everything that happens in low earth orbit, it's already a squazillion dollar economy. And what will happen is that government will lead the way commercial will follow it and eventually there's reasons to be up there we're not going to go up there because we just you know the governments only spent the money it's because eventually there will be jobs and wealth to be created and the reason why it's important to me i think is for human flourishing because every one of those asteroid colonies or asteroid settlements could be a different experiment in democracy or whatever you wanted right maybe somebody there's going to be a mormon or or anarchy professor well or anarchy right well which kind of anarchy are we talking about? that's how the (laughs) movies all turn out they begin as democracies and then then they yeah and and then
0: and then there's that Frame in the movie, 47 years later,
1: (laughs) it's a smoking ruin. Welcome to dystopia. (laughs) But actually a lot of those movies and the ending ending is like, you know, the people have risen and they've, you know, they've, they've overthrown, you know, the, the, the tyrannical overlord and yay, you know, so, um, but I really do think that what's interesting is, is that each one of those settlements will be far enough away from everybody else that you really could experiment with social forms in ways that could be very useful So that's why I see see this is important for human flourishing over the long term. And as an astronomer, my job is to think in the long term. Right.
0: I'll be right back with Adam Frank after this.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
3: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
0: You issued a very important caveat when we were talking about these colonies that we're going to build, and I'm excited about that, on asteroids uh, in the universe. If we get through climate change. Yes. So, are we going to do that or are we not going to do that?
1: Uh, it depends on what day you talk to me. <laughs> you know, this week, <laughs> I was, I got to tell you, we're was...
0: recording this on Monday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last week, I was pretty bummed. I got to tell you, I was really, I was in a really dark place. Were um, you in Rome? where it was 107 Uh, yeah no i was in rochester where it had just been you know i couldn't go outside the week beforehand or whatever because of the smoke from the the fires in ontario the other R city yeah yes right (laughs) um equal to rome in so many ways uh well
0: so professor That doesn't seem very scientific of you if your answer is different depending on the day of the week.
1: (laughs) Well, that's because this is about the human future. And the human future is very much dependent on the choices we make and how we respond to the pressures and problems that our own technologies have driven. Now, in general, I'm hopeful because what's the alternative, right? I think we're going to have a hard time for a while. I think these next, you know, few decades, even centuries. These extreme events. These extreme events. But I do think, you know, you're going to get to a point where the climate has got, you're going to start to see mass deaths. And I think at that point, you know, this is how governments fall, right? Governments fall when there are bread lines and um, climate's going to drive us there. And we're already, I mean, it's too late to have the planet that you and I grew up in, but it's still, you know, there's going to be a future. And the earth also, I always want to point this out. The earth is going to be fine.
0: Right? No, the, this is a very important point. It's a very important point. When people say things like, and I hear this all the time. Let's save Earth. Earth is totally fine. Yeah. It's the people who are in trouble, as you say.
1: That is what it is. Earth, what people need to understand is that Earth is not like a you know little fragile bunny, right? <laughs> Earth is basically, it's a god, right? There's a reason why people are a goddess. People worshipped Earth as a goddess for a reason. And it really is because it literally channels cosmic power power and that's the sun there is so much energy flowing through the earth systems at any one time that there is nothing we can do to it that would like end life on earth it's just it's the biosphere is so much more powerful than we are our job is not to save the earth our job is to not you know piss it off if you want to put it that way or make it angry even the
0: most expansive worst case scenario thermonuclear war
1: Earth survives. Earth survives and life goes on without us, you know, but life will definitely go on. I mean, Earth has been through far worse than we're going to be able to exert on it. It'll be a different planet, but it'll be full of life. But we, that's why we have to understand it's not about saving the Earth. It's about saving this society, this culture that we all depend on, that the 8 billion people on the planet right now depend on for life. Because if you know the climate changes enough, then this kind of society will simply not be able to function. You won't be able to have large-scale agriculture. You won't be able to have large-scale trade. And you know the consequences will be a lot of suffering for a lot of people.
0: This is a variation on a question I asked a minute ago, and it's going back to the idea of how governments... And obviously there are private actors now in increasing numbers, but governments still more likely have the wherewithal to get us on a path of a certain kind of, you know, broad-based exploration and, you know, march on scientific discovery. Let's say I'm a senator in the United States and I want to make a pitch for more and more spending with respect to some of these issues that you and I have been discussing. What is the argument I make to the public when we have so many other problems and homelessness and income inequality and poverty, what is the argument that I make to say we want to double NASA's budget or triple the amount of money we're spending on a telescope program or other such thing
1: for average people? That's a great question. I mean, there's a couple of different ways to do it. One is there was a famous uh, hearing where a senator asked a, a scientist, you know, why should we spend your, this money on science? rather than the defense. And the scientists said, uh, because it makes the country worth defending. You know, a thousand years from now, every politician who's alive today will be entirely forgotten, even the ones you like the most and the ones you hate the most. What will be remembered is that it was the United States that discovered, the, you know, that that led the charge in terms of going to the moon or in terms of, you know, discovering um, exoplanets. So, you know, there's a way in which what makes this country great is these achievements that we're doing you know nobody remembers third century albania i'm sorry if you're albanian i don't mean that but you know there's lots of places right you know certain places like well, i'm down. pretty sure we have nobody from the third century <laughs> that's right around the again i don't know you know if you get a, if you get an email let me know so th- you know that's the most i think the strongest argument is that this is it, the the wonder the the opening of the human mind that these discoveries lead us to are so fundamental to being human that the fact that the United States thousands of years now will be remembered for this, I think, is one way to talk about it. The other is, you know, that thing called the internet, how much is that worth, right? And that, you know, all those technologies, many of them came from space exploration. The protocols for sending images over the internet were developed in a NASA lab. You know, I could just, cell phones, cell, there would be no cell phones if it wasn't for the the activity of the space program. So the return, the ROI on these kinds of, of blue sky Big things, ROI. You just, big. But the
0: problem is you just don't know which thing is going to bring you the ROI.
1: Right, right, exactly. But you know, almost all of them do. I mean, it's, you know, most of this stuff finds its way. When you have to solve some incredibly hard technological problem for some obscure reason in science, that technology ends up, it finds a home. Well, the biggest one you didn't mention, um, space ice cream. <laughs> yeah, that was it—the space which Remember, as a kid, they had the space ice cream. And then what was it? There was the other. My real- kids
0: love that at the Museum of Natural History in yeah. D.C. You would get that, that space ice cream. <laughs> Look, I think that was worth a trillion
1: for sure. You know, I probably mean, about a trillion.
0: Would, yeah. but l- let me ask you about another threat. I don't know if this is in your expertise, but it occurred to me as you were speaking—the possibility of a disastrous for humans, at least not to the planet, as we've been discussing—disastrous asteroid hit, like the kind that destroyed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. What is your state of being sanguine or not sanguine that we can handle that?
1: Um, That's a great example. And we'll detect it on time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that one, we totally can do that. And we've already shown that DART- totally can do that? Totally can do that. Absolutely. I mean, um, the DART mission that we did, like last year, where we like, that was the coolest thing ever, where we like just basically threw a heavy uh, spaceship at the asteroid, we changed its orbit. The orbit has been changed by even that little impact. So, you know, we don't have like if it happened tomorrow, we'd be in deep trouble. But if, uh, you know, within you were developing the technologies now within probably 50 years or so, we'd have enough to, you know, the, the, the thing is early detection because you've detected early enough. All you got to do is go like ping and you can divert its orbit so it doesn't hit Earth. Um, but yeah, I think without using without using nukes because all the movies you use nukes big mistake on with the nukes you don't want to use the nukes because you know in general the nukes are gonna fragment the thing and you don't want a whole bunch of fragments so yeah try and avoid the nukes while i have you if you had to
0: pick armageddon or deep impact
1: deep impact deep impact really I, yeah i know everybody loves armageddon you know i mean all those great scenes and the, you know, well the deep music. impact didn't have the the oil rig drillers exactly yeah i mean i like Deep Impact. Because you know what is it? It's Michael Bay, right? Uh, I'm not Deep Impact. I no, mean, uh, no, Armageddon. it's Mimi Leader. Mimi Leader did not, not no, yeah, right. But that she was Deep Impact. Armageddon was Michael Bay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and like you know, Michael Bay explosions. It was all great. But in terms of like just being kind of a compelling movie, I love the scene in Deep Impact when the ocean, you know, when the, when they're standing in front of the ocean and the tidal wave comes and wipes them out. That was awesome.
0: To me, it's a serious question. <laughs> <a> serious question. <laughs> My friend and former colleague Lisa Monaco, when she was working in the Obama White House and she was overseeing various things, including responses to terrorism. But one of the things in her portfolio was, I, I don't know what the name of it was, uh, threats from asteroids. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I checked in with her from time to time, I'm like, look, I know you got terrorism under control, AQAP, Al Qaeda, et cetera.
1: What's, what's the update on yeah. the asteroids? Space rocks. <laughs> Yeah, because those other things are not as existential as, right. as the asteroid. And that's the problem. I mean, the asteroid, it's, you know, it's a it's a it's a low probability event that wipes you out entirely. So, you know, this is the interesting thing about our advance as a species, right? This is really we're at such an interesting moment. And this is why actually the study of intelligent civilizations becomes so relevant right now. Because, you know, we clearly have capacities that could allow us to become eternal in some sense, right? As a species, right? We You're going back to AI again. No, not even AI. We even without, you know, think just purely biological. We have the capacity to keep ourselves from being wiped out by asteroids, which took out the dinosaurs, right? Dinosaurs were around for a long time and they got wiped out by an asteroid. So um, we we probably will have the capacity at some point to send ships to other stars. So we're, we're almost at the edge of being able to be functionally immortal as a species, just to go on to continue to expand and develop ourselves. And yet we're also at the precipice of, wiping ourselves out in multiple ways, AI, nuclear war, and climate change. And so understanding if anybody else has made it, right? are there is there any species that got to our point and navigated these challenges? That, I think, is one of you know, the most compelling questions about why you want to think about other civilizations.
0: Speaking of other civilizations, to me, one of the most interesting things that you've written about is this question that is posed in some religions, in some religious texts, about the possibility, given how long the Earth has been around and how many sort of revolutions have taken place with respect to the Earth and its makeup and ice ages and all sorts of other things. Is it possible that there was a civilization, intelligent civilization before ours in the distant past? And the distant past, not that distant when you're talking about a four billion year old planet.
1: Right. So... This was a paper I wrote with Gavin Schmidt, who's the head of uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is a NASA climate uh, installation. And we wrote this paper because it's not so much that we really thought there would be one, but we wanted to know, how would you know? Right? How would you know? And this question is-, is It's a bit of a lawyerly exercise. Which it, is one it was very I much like a lawyerly exercise, right? We wanted to know just, you know, because people argue about this, but the question is, is there is there any way you could tell? Because- after about, it turns out that after about a couple of million years, the surface, the Earth's surface is pretty much entirely wiped out and rebuilt, um, you know, because of te- tectonic activity. So you're never going to find like Planet of the Apes, you know, kind of like subway tubes full, you know, from the, the previous civilization.
0: know, you, um, or, or, or the top of the um, right. Statue of Liberty. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, because one of the things you write is that our sophisticated civilization, if it were to end tomorrow, I, I think you write this. That 100 million years in the future, it would take 100 million years into the future before sort of all traces of it would be wiped out to future inspecting eyeballs. And if that's true, going to the future, and maybe I misquoted you.
1: It's a little bit early. It's it's, it's even a few million, actually.
0: Even a few million, right? Yeah. So how do we not know that between the dinosaurs and
1: us, there were, um, you know, reptilian humanoid types? Right. The answer is we don't. Right? I mean, we don't have any way. That's what the paper we tried to work out. Like, how would you even tell? Again, we weren't saying there was. We're just saying, you know. Although we know about the dinosaurs. Actually, now I'm confusing myself because we do know about the dinosaurs. And that was 65 million years ago at the end. Right. But we know about How were they preserved? Fossils. And the thing about fossils is fossils are very um, rare. Most stuff doesn't fossilize, right? So if you had a civilization that lasted, say, 10,000 years, right, which is a long time compared to us, right? If you had a technological civilization building iPhones that lasted 10,000 years— 10,000 years is so short geologically that there there would be no fossils. Nothing of that in in such a short geological time would be fossilized. So that's really, that's the problem. You know, the reason why we have dinosaur fossils is because the dinosaurs were around for 65 million years. So one out of every squazillion dinosaur fell into a mud puddle and got got fossilized. So um, that's just not going to happen with a technological civilization unless it was super long lived. So uh, what we found is that there were some ways to maybe tell, like, if you, you know, nobody's ever done this study, like that, you know, if you had an industrial civilization for a thousand years, it would change the atmosphere in the ways we're changing it. Uh, it would change. It would lay down some isotopes that you might be able to find in layers, rock layers. So what, what's funny is in the end, the paper was we actually were sort of saying what might some but how could somebody tell whether we were here a hundred million years from now. That's what the kind of the quote was. And there, you know, but it would be hard to separate that out from a natural event. That's the problem is because we found some things in the, the record 50 million years ago or so that kind of looked like the right signature. But again, they took place over such long timescales. And there were other things that said, no, that wasn't a civilization.
0: But the other interesting thing about what you write is if we do, to borrow your phrase, get through climate change and our society and our civilization becomes more sustainable and we affect the atmosphere less, we affect the land and the oceans less, we'll be less detectable in the future. Is that a great cosmic irony?
1: It is an irony, but you know what? I changed my mind. Is that okay? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since I wrote You're that allowed? paper, I have thought about it a lot. And I think now- I think I, that's allowed in science. Yes, nowhere else. Actually, you know, that is the beauty. Of, I don't know if this works in law, but the beauty of science is that science shows you how and when to change your mind, right? And I think that is the most- you know, and especially in this polarized era where, like, you know, to change your mind is some sort of show weakness. Um, Hypocrisy. That, yeah. Professor. Right. Right. But to actually, that's a beautiful thing about science. It gives you a way of, like, that everybody would be like, yay, you changed your mind. You know, you <laughs> followed the rules of science.
0: Um, but What you Would you change your mind about?
1: I changed my mind because if you really became a sustainable technological civilization, a high-tech technological civilization, I think what would happen is all boats would rise. In the meaning that, you know, you would get your biosphere to become even more productive and more diverse while you yourself while your technosphere was also becoming more productive and more diverse. And I think that would actually leave imprints on the planet. So you might not pollute, but you might change your forests so that they're producing photoelectricity, right? You might genetically engineer your forest so that the entire forest becomes a power plant. And that would have signatures that I think you'd be able to see from a distance.
0: I have a more profound question for you. Okay. How can religion and science coexist? Generally speaking, but in particular, as you've been talking about evolution and about how small we are, those things come into conflict with lots of religious views, religious worldviews. It's not a real question other than to have you, I want you to opine on the intersection of religion and science.
1: Yeah, well, that that was actually the first book I wrote was the constant fire beyond the science versus religion debate, because actually, I don't think the impulse to a spiritual life and science are at all incompatible. Um, you know, I myself, am a Zen Buddhist. I've been, you know, staring at a wall for 30 years. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and it's pretty boring, I'll tell you, <laughs> at least in the beginning. Um, but, you know, the, the, what I tried to show in that book was that, you know, forget about the dogma, you know, and the doctrines. The impulse to a spiritual life begins with experience, the experience of awe and wonder you know, which leads us to a sense of sacredness, right? Of that there's, there's somehow there's something going on in the world that is more than just us, and more than just our words that we use to describe. And I think that's also the uh, the what where science begins. There's a great word, heriphany, which is the emergence or the the um, emergence into experience of sacredness, right? There's a, an epiphany and a heriphany. And I think we all have that experience of heriphany. You know, maybe you're looking at a sunset, your kid's born, or you're doing the dishes, and all of a sudden that moment of like, ooh, you know, there's just the world is extraordinary when we break through our kind of day to day. And I think that's the root of both science and uh, spiritual endeavor, as I called it, whether it gets expressed through a formal religion or whether it's expressed, you know, in in, in other ways. So I think that's really the root. But and, why?
0: But why is there so much conflict over time? Is that the fault of religion or the fault of science?
1: Uh, you know, it's the fault of fundamentalism, right? If you look at, you know, there's, you look at the history of, of Christianity. There's, I been mean, a, Galileo didn't fare so well. Uh, that's true. Yes, that's a good example of. <laughs> uh, so there, I think maybe there, you might say, uh, politics. Right, I think there because it's about power and control. You know, the 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 Catholic Church was, you know, if if Galileo had shown up three hundred years earlier, it might have been a different story. But the church was facing the Reformation, and so it needed to squash you know heresies. It was protecting its own power. So a lot of this is the way that spiritual endeavor, this impulse that I think many of us have, gets expressed as a political organization. That's where the problem is.
0: Part of the other issue is, I assume but I'm not a scholar of such things, that the original determination that we were the center of the universe, such as it is, and the sun and the planets revolved around us, was sort of baseline arrogance about how important and central to the universe people are, human beings are. And the more exoplanets you discover, you and your colleagues discover, and the more you can determine how many there are and how far they go, the less significant we seem. Yes. Yes. And you also talk about an important concept that's both a religious concept, a philosophical concept, scientific concept, I guess, is meaning. And as these discoveries keep getting propounded and science keeps expanding, like the universe, what are we to understand about where there's meaning?
1: Well, I think there's really uh, a very interesting thing happening in science right now, which is that um, the information theory Right. Which is like kind of at the core of so many of our technologies um, and the understanding of life. I think there's kind of a revolution going on in the understanding of life where it's just beginning. Where actually we're going to kind of undo the Copernican revolution in a certain way. And we're going to understand that, yes, the universe is vast and, you know, we're just a small part of it. And yet at the same time, we can't tell the story of the universe scientifically without including us. This is the lesson I, I believe of quantum mechanics, like all the stuff that happens with quantum mechanics, um, that really we are actually central and meaning because we're there. You know, meaning is actually central to the universe because you can't. So
0: anything that is observed by a particular party, whether that's a human or a giraffe or an ant, that that observer is central to the enterprise. If- Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yes, I would go even deeper than that, is that the, um, you know, one of the flaws of the way we think about minds, right? And this actually could lead us to AI if we wanted to go there, is that like, oh, your brain is, your mind is just in your head. You're just a meat computer. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a big pushback. <laughs> I've Again. never heard that term before. <laughs> Trademark. Yeah, um, meat computer. Meat computer. Yeah, and that's the way, that's what, you know, this idea of reductionism in science. You know, science has been dominated by what we would call reductionism. Philosophical views that, like, oh, if you know everything about the quarks, that's it. You're done. You, know, you can just build up from there, and everything else is just a consequence of the quarks. And you know, I think there's emerging in science a very different view, which would say that you know, your mind is not just in your head. You're actually an ecosystem of minds and of life. Like, you wouldn't be here without all the other life, and you wouldn't be here without all the other minds which gave you language, which taught you language. So it's not like you're. We're all just running around with little chips in our head, and we're just. The Locked into our heads, there's a broader view, which is that actually we're you know we're indelibly woven into this network, this infinitely complex network that is all of life, that is the entire history of the planet, which therefore is also the entire history of the solar system, which is therefore the. So I think there's a very different view emerging, and we have a book coming out in uh, next year in the winter, me and a philosopher and another physicist, called The Blind Spot, where we try and unpack these views. We think there's. A very different way of viewing science that will also be very helpful to us so that, you know, to steer us away from kind of climate change, you know, a different view of life and Earth that understands that idea, the balance between significance and insignificance.
0: Look, I think one, one important element of people's understanding outside the religious context is to have people who are like you, professor of astrophysics, you know, deeply embedded in the scientific world. But you, you come on podcasts. <laughs> you,
1: right. <laughs> you do interviews. You
0: write books for popular consumption, not just for your fellow scientists. Do you wish there were more people in the world of science doing that?
1: Uh, you know what's interesting about the new generation is that there are lots doing that. When I was coming up Oh, are there too many? No, no. The more, the merrier. I mean, people. Does everyone want to be Neil deGrasse Tyson? Everybody should be Neil deGrasse Tyson. The more, (laughs) you know, going out into, you know, going out into schools and libraries and, you know, Elks halls everywhere and explaining, showing people these amazing pictures or the, you know, the, the, the animations of what's going on in your cell right now. The insane molecular shenanigans in your cells right now. That can only be a good thing. Because, again, it's about awe. And wonder and the sense that life is so much more than just our opinions and our arguments. Um, so I think that's actually a great thing. When I was coming up, there was only Carl Sagan. I remember one of my professors kind of like uh making fun of Carl Sagan. And I was like, who is my hero? And I was like, why are you doing that? Um, and it was seemed like, you know, to do popularization was seen, you know, to be beneath a scientist. But now this generation Well, that's silly. We I have I have quoted recently at length from Carl
0: Sagan, who, on top of being a, a brilliant scientist, was just a
1: Beautiful writer. Yeah, yeah, truly. St. Carl, as I like to say, because he was really- St. Carl. He was incredible. So I think there's there's a lot happening now. Uh, you know, I, I advise a lot of students who are starting their own, you know, their podcasts or they're doing beautiful YouTube video explainers. So um, hopefully there's an audience for it.
0: Professor Adam Frank, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. I really
1: enjoyed the conversation.
0: And the book- Coming soon, The Little Book of Aliens. My conversation with Adam Frank continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for Insiders, we speak about the discovery of cosmic
1: waves that are rippling through space, time, and even through you. Every movement, when you wave your hand, you're creating gravitational waves so that there's like this city din. You know, like if you're walking through a city, you hear all the jackhammers and the people yelling at each other and the car horns, it creates a din. This is a din or a hum from the entire universe, not just now, but throughout its entire history.
0: The Insider membership is now 40% off for the first year. To sign up, head to cafe.com slash insider and use discount code JUSTICE. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Discount code justice. Before we end the show this week, I want to talk about an important person in history Emmett Till. If he were alive, Emmett would have celebrated his 82nd birthday this past Tuesday, July 25th. Instead, we remember Emmett Till and his brutal murder as one of the most salient events in U.S. history that invigorated the civil rights movement. His story should be familiar. In 1955, Emmett, a 14-year-old black boy, was kidnapped and lynched by two white men after a white woman accused him of harassment at a grocery store in Money, Mississippi. Emmett's mutilated body was found three days later in the Tallahatchie River. At his funeral, Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, had an open casket so people could see with her own horrified eyes, what had happened to her son. Emmett's gruesome murder and the subsequent reaction to it reflected the harsh reality of what it meant to be a black American, especially in the Jim Crow South. Emmett's killers were never held to account, but what happened to him will not be forgotten. Today, we find meaningful ways to honor Emmett Till and remind our country the lessons his death taught us. On Emmett's birthday this week, President Biden announced the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument to honor the legacies of Emmett Till and his mother. The monument will include three protected sites, one in Illinois, where Emmett was born and where his funeral was held, and the other two in Mississippi, where he was murdered. At the commemoration ceremony, President Biden said this.
1: While darkness and denialism can hide much, they erase nothing. can hide, but they erase nothing. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know. We have to learn what we should know. We should know about our country. We should know everything, the good, the bad, the truth of who we are as a nation.
0: In 2022, Biden also signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act into law, finally making lynching a federal hate crime. As we reflect on Emmett's death 68 years later, it's clear that the work is far from finished. Just last week, Florida's Board of Education approved its 2023 social studies curriculum, which includes lessons on the personal benefits of slavery. This is just one of many incidents that highlight the importance of discussing and calling out racism wherever we find it, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Adam Frank. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669 24 preet Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The cafe team is David Curlander, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.